0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is on the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello everybody, it is March the 2nd, 2022, March has begun dismally, um, I don't need to tell any of you that. Uh, The headlines this morning are appalling. Russia advances in the south of Ukraine, edges towards Kiev, according to the New York Times. Indiscriminate bombing of civilian targets intensifies. This is our worst nightmare. CNN headlines that the Ukraine reels from brutal Russian onslaught. Um, Wall Street Journal maintains this, suggesting that civilian death toll has already reached 2,000 people on the Kharkiv front. Um, even the Russians are acknowledging heavy casualties, as according to the Financial Times, missiles rain down on Ukraine. Um, and the FT talks about the Kharkiv assault as another Stalingrad, which is particularly appalling. One wonders whether there'll be a moment in the West. Joe Biden talked last night about, uh, in his presidential address, about um, confronting the Russians, but whether he'll come up with the idea of a red line, of a moment that the Russians, a place that the Russians can't cross. We are talking about a red line today, but a different kind of red line, although enormously uh, relevant. My guest is Joby Warwick. He's the author. Of a new paperback. The book came out last year, Red Line. Joby is full-time at the Washington Post. He's their national security correspondent and an authority on Syria and the infamous Red Line that Barack Obama established but didn't maintain. Uh, The book is entitled Red Line, The Unraveling of Syria and America's Race to Destroy the Most dangerous arsenal in the world. Uh, We'll get onto that arsenal later, Toby. But as we were discussing uh, before we went live, uh, there is something very chilling, very eerie about the replay uh, of this Russian playbook, which began in Syria and now uh, seems to be playing out all over again in Ukraine. Is that fair?
1: I am struck, Andrew, and, and again, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to be on the show. But it, it's we're seeing, I think, playing out right now something that uh, that uh, that Putin has had in motion for for really for years. And Syria, you know, looking back, looks like a, a test ground. You know, a test ground for military doctrine, a test ground for uh, for weapon systems. He's he's tried out more than a hundred weapon systems in in Syria in that conflict. An entire generation of, of junior officers cycled through Syria and got combat experience. Interestingly, the one thing that, that's different that uh, is a bit surprising to me is, is Putin had latched onto this limited action doctrine, which means that, yeah, you can use you know a little bit of force as leverage with local forces on the ground. In the case of Syria, the Syrian government troops and also Iranians and Hezbollah. To get your 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 mission accomplished. Here he's thrown that out the window and he's gone in full tilt with ground forces. And we're seeing pretty quickly that it's uh, it's much more difficult than uh, than he might have perceived or expected. And and so I'm wondering if he's learning some painful lessons uh right now.
0: One hope so. Uh Joby, Wikipedia has a long entry on the Russian military intervention in the Syrian Civil War. You're an expert. Perhaps you might talk about the Russian involvement and how indeed it it perhaps tilted the balance towards Assad
1: hmm. Well one thing and I think readers who see my book uh, it's, it's a fairly complex story. I tell it as a narrative, but Russia is really at the heart of it. and Russia was uh, was committed to the survival of of the Assad regime and there' multiple reasons for that. It was certainly committed the entire time but after 2015, it saw again the possibility that, uh, that Assad, its, its client, its, uh, its, its most important ally in the Middle East, was starting to, to weaken, and, and uh, there was a real possibility of, of a regime collapse. And then you see Russia moving in militarily. You know, yeah, scale. and, and
0: uh, you're the expert, Joby, but it seems to me that um, all this needs to be understood in the historical context of the collapse of the Mubarak regime in Syria, uh, in, in mm-hmm. Egypt. Um, the anarchy in Libya. We did a show a couple of weeks ago on Libya. Mm-hmm. So the Arab Spring seemed to be triggering a domino effect when all these old authoritarian leaders were falling. So the mm-hmm. Russians, I, I guess, made a call that they were going to make sure that Assad didn't fall.
1: Yeah, and this, this one government in particular, because you're right, they, I think they, they saw what happened in Libya. Uh, that was something uh, you know where they thought the, the West overstepped. You know, uh, intruded in a, in a way that wasn't welcome. But for Syria, it's much more personal because here you have the only warm water port in the world for, for the Russian fleet and a, a really close ally who, who by extension, gave uh, Russia you know, entree into that part of the world. So they, they were absolutely dedicated and determined to keep Assad in power at all costs, as it turns out. And they did spend quite a amount of money, but they were also very happy to, to, to expend other people's soldiers, particularly the Iranians and, and Hezbollah and, and the Syrians, But there was, I think from the very beginning, they were absolutely committed to making sure that this Arab Spring uh, sequence that we saw with all these regimes toppling, that wasn't going to happen in in Syria, and they made sure it didn't.
0: Uh, Joby, we can all find all sorts of uh, articles in hindsight in terms of the Obama regime. But even back in, I think it was 2016, there were lots of articles like Syria being the stain on Obama's legacy. Do you think there's some truth to that? Um, Most of us are admirers of Barack Obama, but he doesn't come out of this looking very good, does he, out of the Syria policy?
1: It was, you know, I know it's a cliche almost by now, but but administration people describe Syria as, as a problem from hell, where there were really no good options for them. And well, that's what I, Susan
0: Rice said, uh, no good options. But that's when that's why we have people like Susan Rice. When you have hmm. no good options, you make the best option available, which they didn't, did
1: they? Yeah, it was kind of a mix. You know, I think they did some things. They did one thing right, which my my book gets into. There were 1,300 tons of a weapon of mass destruction in Syria. It was the only country in the Arab Spring world that had a, a WMD, a real one, portable, extremely lethal. A, a few liters of that stolen out of the country would have been a, ingredients for a terrorist attack that would have could have potentially changed history. And so there was a real concern about getting that out. Uh, I think, honestly, frankly, they were they were more concerned about that potential than uh than than other factors that they were weighing at the time and so when an opportunity came that instead of using military force which may or may not have had any real impact in 2013 against Assad, if they had an opportunity to get a weapon out a weapon of mass destruction destroy it not just the weapon itself but infrastructure factories bunkers you know everything that, that sort of went yeah. into this program they were able to, to to get rid of it in nine months in the middle of a war which is and, 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 and
0: that's one of the the important features in your book but you did an amazing job, Toby, revealing that, but
1: was that enough? No, it wasn't enough. It, it, it's, it kind of, it, it shows there are certain things that, that, that the Americans can still do well. We, we're good at the technical fix. We're good at the vaccine. We're terrible at, at, at fixing the big problems, sometimes just beyond our, our capability. And with Syria, a, a very nasty civil war was allowed to continue, with all the things that came out of that. The refugee flows into Europe, and how that destabilized democracies. Russia and Iran moving in in a big way, and the suffering, which continues eleven years on. It's, uh, it's, it's. All the seeds are there for future conflicts. We've seen what happened in failed states such as Afghanistan. It, it's, it's. I think it's, it'd be absurd not to think that things like this will, will come out of Syria too, because it's. You get a whole generation of of young people that never really attended school. They live in a in a broken place with no hope. It's it's all the all the ingredients for some very bad things still to come. I think, Joby, do you think in
0: terms of American twenty first century history? Well, this is ultimately a legacy of nine eleven that we got obsessed. I mean, you've written wonderful books about the rise of ISIS. You wrote Black Flags. You wrote uh, the Triple Age, and all uh, um, enormously. Uh, impressive, accomplished, and successful books, but did America take its eye off the ball in terms of our obsession with terrorism and Al Qaeda and ISIS?
1: Well, what we didn't do, I think, is is ever really come up with a, a strategy that worked for for dealing with it. And and it's striking to think to think about what we did that didn't go well. I mean, we decided in, in Iraq the idea was to invade a country, re- regime change. You know, if sort of you put a democracy in the Middle East, that didn't work out very well. To in put Libya, it mildly, we, I mean, we yeah. had
0: Robert Draper on the show. We've had so many shows in Iraq. Draper, like you, an enormously accomplished uh, observer, journalist of the Middle East, describes Iraq as the worst foreign policy mistake in American history. And most people wouldn't argue with that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that was where we put boots on the ground, went in with the 101st Airborne. And it was, you know, I think undoubtedly a disaster for this country. In Libya, we tried to do something a little bit around the margin, create a no-fly zone. What do we get? We get a failed state and, and sort of an entrenched terrorist organization, um, you know, no good outcomes there. In Syria, we essentially were hands off. We decided not to get involved militarily, except for some some really limited airstrikes, which really had no effect. And, and that's that's a, a disaster as well. So it's it's humbling to, to see how, over the last decade and, and, and change, two decades now, there's all these efforts by different administrations to, to really sort of fundamentally change uh, how we operate in these parts of the world. And, and none of them have, have, have frankly proved to be very effective or, or, or really helped local population or, or even helped our place in the world. How,
0: how much should we personalize this, um, mm-hmm. Joby? I had a couple of years ago the CNN foreign correspondent Clarissa Ward on the show. And she wrote a book about the tragedy of Syria, her own experience there. She, she spent a lot of time on the ground there. And she told me this story of, of how deeply she cursed Ben Rhodes, who was supposedly in charge of some of the Syrian policy in the Obama administration. I actually talked to Rhodes about, um, uh, about Ward's uh, remarks, and he was rather shamefaced. He didn't have any response. I mean, we can't, of course, blame Ben Rhodes but the suffering of of, of of American foreign policy failure here, leaving aside the Ukraine, isn't mm. is hideous,
1: isn't it? Yeah, and it's but it's nonpartisan, and it's. I mean, I think it's right. I mean, we
0: can blame. I mean, I've, yeah. I've got all sorts of articles. I mean, we've got Max Boot arguing in your paper that um, Obama's Syria policy was bad, Trump's is worse. I'm not excusing the Republicans here. Mm.
1: Sure, but. You know, I've spoken to to Ben Rhodes many times about Syria and they all, you know, this is the subject that they all would love to go fleeing from the room whenever it comes up because there are no good answers for what happened. Uh, There's a lot of wishful thinking and sometimes speculation about what would have happened. But it's funny that the one thing they all seem to regret now, uh, often not on the record, but the thing they really seem to think went wrong was to say at the very beginning of this conflict, that Assad must go. This simple act of taking a moral stand in the middle of an uprising, you would think whatever what other choice do they have? But those words essentially sent a message to Syrians that the West is gonna help you out. We're gonna, we're gonna back you up, we're gonna, you know, make sure you prevail. And the reality is America in particular was never prepared to back up those those words with with force. With any more than wishful thinking, and and a little bit of help on the margins for you know humanitarian needs, but we we are not in the business these days of of sort of bailing out uh, you know uh, countries that are that are under assault. And I think even with Ukraine, we're seeing right now there's there's the sanctions and there's you know moral support. Surely Um, that's it. It's pretty limited what we're going to do. It's just that's just the reality of the world right now.
0: But that's not acceptable, Joby.
1: It's simply
0: unacceptable in the sense that America took responsibility for the war after uh, for the world after the Second World War. Mm. It ran the world for 50 years after the Second World War. History was supposed to have ended. Uh, And then when things get tough, you can't just say, well, it's not our problem anymore. It's too complicated. So we're just going to pull out. I'm not saying you're saying that. But if people like Rhodes or Trump or Obama, it seems to be an unwillingness to take responsibility When things become complicated and difficult, and when we involve when when it requires enormous sacrifices
1: on our part, yeah, I think that a big part of the problem, and and they would acknowledge this, is it's it's an American failure for sure, but it's also a failure of our international institutions, our our. UN is no longer capable or set up to be able to intervene. Yeah, I don't know if like it ever it. was
0: capable, was it? Yeah, but, but
1: but here here was a case where every effort to have accountability, every effort to have you know a decent humanitarian effort going into Syria, blocked and blocked and blocked by by, the, by Russian vetoes, and so we sort of continued to crash against this problem that we didn't have. Legal authority, which which Americans typically believe they need in order to intervene in another country that we're not at war with. Um, and, and so our ability to, to really affect issues internationally requires partners, I think. We don't want to be the cowboy kind of trying to fix all the world's problems. And our ability to do it through institutions and allies, that, that seems to be quite limited and more limited than it was certainly in the 90s when it felt for at least a brief moment that the world could pull together and, and, and tackle some big problems. That well, the world really could
0: pull together because it was an American world and the American decided who was going to pull together on wh- which which issues. I mean, that's yeah. a very easy thing to do when you're fully in control. We're talking with Joby Warwick, um, one of America's leading journalists from the Washington Post. He His uh, book Red Line came out last year, enormously acclaimed, revealing all sorts of terrible things about what happened in Syria. We're talking about Syria we're talking about Iraq we're talking about Russia but above all else I think we're talking about America or America's role in the 21st century world um Joby we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back to solve all the world's problems in 60 seconds hi everyone Andrew here again I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keen On show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other you can watch these shows live, uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is, and on their LitHub Live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube. Page. So, whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now, back to Keenan. We're back with Joby Warwick, the author of Red Line, a book just come out in paperback that was acclaimed last year. The unraveling of Syria and America's race to destroy the most dangerous arsenal in the world. Um, We discussed um, before the break the fact that um, Russia, and this is I'm quoting from an NPR piece uh, from yesterday, Russia showed its playbook in Syria. Here's what it may mean for civilians in Ukraine. We're already seeing that today in the Ukraine. We had a show, uh, Joby, a couple of years ago with a writer called Daniel Levin on the dirty money economy in Syria. I wonder whether Syria, not only in a military sense um, and in terms of um, chemical warfare and chemical weapons, but whether Syria somehow captured the hell of life in the 21st century in, in, in a stateless regime in, in terms of the way in which it was ruled or is ruled by a mafia with dirty international money.
1: Hmm. You know, I I was speaking to a diplomat who was heavily engaged in in talks with the the Assad regime early on when there was still some hope of of perhaps accommodating the protest movement in 2011-2012 and and stopping the violence. And so the question was asked of this this, uh, Syrian officer, you know, don't you feel like you need to accommodate sort of the wishes of the people? You can't kill your way out of this, this mess. And his reply was, we are built for this. There's no bottom to the brutality that, that's, that's attainable to us that we're, we're willing to stoop to, and now we've seen that. I mean, I think the use of chemical weapons was an example of, of a regime that had a weapon system they were actually planning it was their strategic arsenal to use against Syria in, in a future war. But they were they sort of repurposed chemical weapons to use against unarmed civilians in towns and villages just as a means of breaking the back of the opposition and, and killing people so they would be tired of fighting. This is the record of this this regime. This is a regime that's been supported, backed by Russia for for all these many years. And now you see in Ukraine, it's it's really disturbing that the, sort of the bombings of hospitals, the, you know, what looks very clearly to us on 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 video, at least, to be war crimes. Uh, and so that that playbook is 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 coming into the Ukraine fight now too.
0: What do we learn then from Syria that you know? You know this playbook as well as anyone. What have we learned that we can use now to confront this new reality in the Ukraine, which uh is 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 really shocking everyone because it's yeah. it's so new for everyone who wasn't watching Syria carefully and most of us weren't.
1: Yeah. Well, one thing we've we've certainly learned is that there's there's no again, bottom to the to the brutality, sort of the use of 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 of, of force, there's no shaming, it seems to me. There's Um, You know, I think that Russia is very good at at putting up its propaganda, but you you can't shame them by confronting them with facts because they just essentially deny them and continue to do what they're doing. They are sensitive to a few things. They don't like to have their helicopters shot down, as we saw in Syria. So if there are places where rebels are armed with man pads or stingers, they can actually take down a helicopter or a plane. Russians typically don't go there, and we see that set success playing out in, in in Ukraine this week. And they're also they're sensitive to to economic pain. Sanctions are are never enough, but they do work to some degree. Um, these these guys don't like to be you know you know to, to be deprived of their foreign currency reserves around the world. So I think that could take a toll. It seems to be working somewhat. we we'll don't know if it's enough, but it's it's something, and it's a useful weapon. Why, why? did the syria
0: crimes the great war crimes in syria which were created and certainly aided by the russians of the assad regime why wasn't it an issue 5 mm. or 10 years ago why did progressives and conservatives alike essentially ignore it it wasn't yeah. even a it, it it didn't even reach people in the way in which the bosnian civil war reached people was it simply because there was no sarajevo it wasn't europe and the people in the West, are somehow implicitly racist, and when it comes to the suffering of people in a place like Syria, they take it less seriously than the suffering in Sarajevo or even Ukraine.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I, I've been struck by this, Andrew, so many times because it's certainly that suffering and those those hor- horrific, you know, events that have taken place have been documented and and they're available to see if you if you you seek out the news reports. But as a story, Syria pretty quickly disappeared off the front page. And and the only explanation that 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 I can think of, other than the ones that are that are truly speak awfully of us, is that there is we've as as sort of Western countries kind of collectively reached this point of fatigue. This has been going on now in Afghanistan or Iraq or various places for so long that we we avert our gaze. We, we just just reached a, a limit of, of being able to to care about such things. And that's a, a terrible statement on us all, but but it really seems to be the truth. You know, I've, I've noticed, you know, in my own efforts to just talk about these issues, everybody wanted to talk about ISIS because Islamic State, you know, there was a potential danger to people in the homeland, their terrorist attacks in Europe and maybe some in the U.S. too. So people cared about that. But getting, you know, ordinary Americans to care about the plight of refugees or the plight of of, you know people living in these villages that were getting mercilessly bombed and having hospitals and food convoys bombed. Um, it just didn't seem to to scratch you know our you know, our, our, our consciousness and, and and it's it's really alarming to me that we've reached this uh, level of, of cynicism or apathy, but it's it, whatever it is it's, it's it's really it's deeply disturbing to me to watch.
0: Joby, what's the situation in Syria on March? second 2022 has the civil war ended who who hmm. is in control is there even a country
1: hmm. uh, a geographical entity called syria right now it's it's really a good question andrew because and you have this this bizarre situation where you know everyone says that assad has won in the sense that most of the most of the fighting seems to be over he's in control in damascus he, he controls the sort of the major cities and yet there, it's a frozen conflict. Uh, you know, good chunks of the, of the country don't belong to the regime. Up in the northwest, certainly, there's a little enclave that's, that's held by the rebels back by Turkey out in the northeast. So there's a Kurdish, there's a Kurd-
0: and there's, of course, a Kurdish zone, as there always tends to be in these Arab countries that break up.
1: Right, and, the, and it'll never be, I, I don't think, in our lifetime, an autonomous, a truly autonomous country, because Turkey doesn't want that outcome. And so you have the essentially de facto partitions and you have you know, huge areas of, of border that still are outside the, the state's control, something like 12% of border crossings in Syria. And are those essentially like that? run by militias, by mm-hmm. armed but mafia? Militias, by Kurds, by yeah, you know, by mafia in some cases. We've seen just actually in the last few months, uh, Syria has, has slipped into to be, you know, becoming a narco state as well. And you see sort right. of gangs of armed you know, drug dealers, drug smugglers, crossing the border into jordan and engaging in firefights with, with local forces there and so it's it's uh, sort of the very definition of a failed state with one exception being sort of the capital and, and some of the uh some of the coastal areas where the alawites live other than that it, it's not a functioning society it's not being rebuilt it's uh desperately poor uh it's 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 a tragedy and it's one that's going to continue to affect the rest of us because of all the bad things that come from failed states like that
0: I mean, Hobbes warned us about this. This is the purest manifestation of Hobbesian anarchy, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think I think he would very much recognize uh, his own prophetic... Uh, and we've
0: lived through it. I mean, Hobbes lived through it. I did a show earlier today on the 12th century with uh, Earl who's written a book, The White Ship, about anarchy in England in the Middle Ages in the 12th century. But in a sense, Syria has returned to the 12th century, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, ab- absolutely. Except it's a 12th century that uh, where people have uh, you know, cell phones and are able to post video to the and to high the world tech. World. Weapons. So it's in that sense, it's it's right with us and the and the propaganda too. I think some of the, especially from the from the, the militants and from the ISIS people, ability to project themselves even in a place like Syria, still being powerful and 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 and, and still having a say in what's going on in the ground there.
0: Why do we always look, uh, Joby, for the the silver lining? Even your book has the silver lining of America's race to destroy the most dangerous arsenal in the world. I'm not criticizing you for that subtitle. Probably it's your editors and those kind of subtitles sell books. But um, why do Americans always want cheerful news and cheerful stories, inspiring stories, the killing of Bin Laden, the finding of these chemical weapons by... Uh, you know, uh, the one, one thing I read in the four, how four women destroyed 1,200 tons of poison gas and diffused a crisis. I'm sure some of that stuff's true, but it, 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 it's not ultimately helpful journalism, is it? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, y- y- I, the, the marketing um, discussion for me, if I, you know, I certainly love my editor and my publisher, but uh, w- there was a real insistence in putting the word America America's race to destroy this this, this deadly arsenal because it, so the sense is be, it be without that, without some some hero in it, some reason to identify with somebody in the story, you, you just see you know ninety eight percent of readers are looking at the cover and just walking away. It's, it's almost as, as a way of hey there's there's a cool story in here that you might like. There are some there were some heroes in the story. They did a good thing in the middle of this terrible conflict against all odds in the middle of the Civil War. But, but ultimately, the story is, is one that's uh, depressing. It's, it's from a policy point of view and, and from a humanitarian point of view. There's really not, not much that's that's hopeful at all about the Syrian situation we see today.
0: The one thing about Syria that's always intrigued and bemused me and, and which distinguishes us, I think, from other types of international crisis is the proximity and role of Israel. Hmm. How would you make sense of, the failure or the absence of Israel as essentially the superpower in the region
1: from participating in the civil war. They've been absent, and yet they've managed to have at least some hidden role in almost everything that happened. From the very beginning, from the, sort of the intelligence on, on that led to Obama's red line statement, there was some Israeli intelligence behind that. Um, they certainly had strong views about how they think, they thought things should go. They were Thinking that, like everyone else, that Assad was going away, but after a while, when it was clear that he wasn't, it was it was better for them to have um, at least a predictable uh, neighbor next door, as, as awful as the Assad's are, as a, you know, compared to say an Islamist group or or extremists in the capital. Uh, so they've they've been involved, and now you see them with Russian permission, apparently, or at least a tacit permission, reaching into Syria whenever they feel like it, whenever there's 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 uh, a shipment of weapons from Iran that they want to. That they think might cause problems for them. Suddenly, you see an airstrike. You see missiles uh, exploding in a port in some facility somewhere, and they're they're having an impact in keeping the Iranians in check with their own ambitions in Syria. So they're they're extremely involved, but very much below the surface in kind of pulling strings uh, in a way that most people don't really see or recognize. Do they have any responsibility for this? Are they sort of
0: c- complicit with the Russians? Do they? Because I, because I, my understanding is that the Israeli relations with Russia certainly aren't as bad as American relations with Russia, Absolutely. and that the Israelis were willing to allow the Russians to play a role in Syria. Is that fair?
1: Right, and and that's why you see this really kind of awkward uh, predicament for Israel just in the last few weeks with the Ukrainian situation. They've been a bit reserved in their, their so their criticism of 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 Putin. Um, they've been supportive of the Ukrainians. They've sent medical teams in. Uh, to help Ukrainian refugees. But, you know, the Russian relationship in Syria is very, very important to their own national security. So they're being very careful about what they say about Putin. And is that uh, because because of the port? I think it's mostly because Russia, in its own way, is keeping the Iranians in check. And the Iranians are the ones that the Israelis really worry about. And as long as Russia kind of controls the airways and then lets Israel come in when it feels like it needs to, to kind of... You know, mow the grass, as Israelis will say, kind of take care of some problems they see festering, without any, you know, repercussions. That's a pretty good arrangement for the Israelis, and they've 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 kept this up for years now. And I don't think they want to see that go away because whatever comes next might be even worse for them.
0: We haven't even mentioned Turkey, uh, Joby. We did a show with David Bauer, the LSE Mm -hmm. historian, written a wonderful book on the Ottomans, arguing that the Ottomans are central, not just in. Uh, Near Eastern, uh, Eastern Mediterranean history, but in European history. Um, In in a sense, it's a return to the Ottoman world, but without any strong states. Is that fair?
1: Yeah. And and with the central Ottoman state, you know, really seeming not sure of what it really wants. I mean, he came in hot and heavy to, to make sure that Assad went away. And having failed to achieve that outcome, they seemed committed to preserving at least a corner of Syria that they can control Controlling big swaths of the border, so that so that the Kurds don't create problems for them, and so now it's kind of a maintenance issue for them. It's 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 extremely costly. Um, Erdogan's facing election next year. I, I don't think he's in a really good position in terms of what he's got going on in in Syria. So it's it's very much sort of the Ottoman world, but but not a particularly uh, helpful one for the Syri- for the Turks at the moment.
0: We've had some shows, Joby, about the effectiveness of sanctions. I had. Um... Thomas Sedlacek, the uh, the Czech uh, economist on the show at the weekend, talking about sanctions as war. The Assad regime and the, the mafia surrounding Assad, they were all excluded from the world economy. They were all sanctioned up the wazoo. Did it make any difference? Have we learned anything about mm.
1: sanctions as war from the Syrian crisis? Well, I've been looking at this, this issue for years. It does seem like it's the one arrow in our quiver in almost every conflict, well, we'll, we'll sanction them and their whole departments within the state department and over our treasury that put together the legal documents and decide what the targets will be. And often it's, it's symbolic at best. It has no real impact. I would say most sanctions really don't other than sort of naming and shaming, calling out somebody we think is a bad guy and, and then saying, oh, you can't do business in the United States anymore as if they were planning to anyway. The Russian sanctions seem to be a, a bit more severe, kind of uh, mirroring what we did uh, in the mid-2000s or, or the 20, 2012, 2013 timeframe with the Iranians, and we actually put some pretty tight um, uh, restrictions on their ability to, to do international commerce. But outside those really severe sanctions, the impact is it's it's really not that significant in many cases. And Regimes find ways to get around them. Bad guys find ways to move their cargo, whether there's sanctions on their ships or not. It's just a fact of the world. It makes it harder for them. Their, their cost of business goes up, but they always find a way to get around them. So it seems like it's, it's a minimal, it's, it's, it's a limited impact at, at best, I would say.
0: We talked earlier about Susan Rice saying in Syria, America had or has no good options. I can see exactly the same piece being written by Tony Blinken or somebody else in the Obama administration about the Ukraine, that America has no good options. We can't go to war. Mm. We can heavily sanction them. Even that's not effective. What do you think we should do, Joby? You've been through these crises before. What what can America do to actually impact this terrible humanitarian crisis that's unfolding as we speak? Well, so the humanitarian part of it is is important, and I do do absolutely believe. Well, and that. I, I, I sorry to interrupt. I, I, beyond the humanitarian, the the this 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 illegal war, imperial yeah. war.
1: I think this becomes in a way a proxy war for us. I mean, without America troops getting involved, because that's that's a very dangerous, potentially escalatory escalatory thing to happen but for us to continue to provide ukrainians with with advanced weapons that they need even as they began to lose control of some of these urban areas the, so the javelins the stingers the things that can really cause pain to to the Russians I mean that worked in Afghanistan as we saw it was a CIA funded uh, you know armaments program for the what was really the sort of the, the muhujadin, sort of the the Islamist in, in Afghanistan those stingers, it was really what brought it into the to that conflict and 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 the soviets went home and i i think there's a real potential you know one never knows there's other factors involved here but you know as russians continue to to face heavy resistance even after they occupy the country that may not be sustainable to them and that may be the one thing that will prevent them from permanently annexing ukraine is just just allowing the ukrainians to fight as much as they appear to be willing and and, and able to do
0: Long-time viewers or people with long historical memories might imagine, uh, Joby, that we're going back to Vietnam proxy wars, Russians, Chinese. It's a terrifying situation, as you acknowledge. There are no easy solutions, but we're in mm. the middle of this thing, and we're lucky to have such uh, responsible, honest journalists like you. You're Red Line, the unravelling of Syria and America's race to destroy the most dangerous Arsenal in the world is just out as paperback. It's essential reading for anyone, and we all have a responsibility to understand what happened in Syria. What else should people be reading on March 2, 2022, Joby?
1: Hmm. Well, I have to give a, a shout out to a, a good friend and I think one of the best nonfiction authors in the business, Larry Wright, who's with The New Yorker, uh, who is Written probably the best book ever about sort of the, the, the sort of evolution of of what we see as the model modern um, uh, Islamist extremist jihadist whatever the proper label is called Looming Tower. It's one of yeah. my favorite books of all. I'd love time. to actually get him on the show. Can you introduce me? I, I just spoke to him. I just actually was with him in Austin a few days ago, and he just has actually a brilliant piece in uh, in the New Yorker just came out I think today yeah, about I saw an it. elephant in the Brooklyn Zoo, which is an mm. unusual topic for him, but it's it's really fascinating. And the other is actually a former editor of mine, Steve Call, who was uh, also at New Yorker and was the dean of, of the journalism school at Columbia, uh, this this wonderful book called Ghost Wars, which yeah, brought, Steve is actually on the show yeah. and, and yeah.
0: Ghost Wars we talked about. But I, I'd, yeah. I'd love to get right on the show. Hmm. Uh, well, Joby, uh, honor uh, talking to you. Continue to do your important work. Uh, finally, uh, Joby Warwick, the author of Red Line. Uh, who
1: runs the world? Who's in charge, Joby Warwick? <laughs> well, you know, I, sometimes I think it's it's not the uh, the political leaders as much as we like to think it is. Uh, it's not even necessarily the Putins. I, I do think some of the you know our, our uh, you know our tech giants today are, are the most important uh, figures because they shape opinion. I think more than anyone, the, the Zuckerberg's and the and the Bezos's and and the so the Googles, you know. All have us or as captive audiences now. Every everything we read and consume seems to be sort of through that filter, and it's really changing the way we think. As you've quite well noted and documented in, in your own books, it's 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 a fundamental change, and not necessarily uh, you know a positive one for the you know, for the future of our democracy. But that's essentially the impact and the influence that's there now within just a handful of tech tech companies. I think it's it's probably the sort of the most important societal change that I've seen come along in in recent years.